Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. Jack, as an education historian, you know that the long history of efforts to finally fix our public schools are littered with evidence of failure, tombstones of failure. There's a lot of technology scattered along the side of that highway as well. Well, I have great news. We finally figured it out, and the answer is something called personalized learning. Does it involve computers? It certainly does, and I'm encouraging you to get in now because this is the thing that's going to do it. I, oh, as a ground floor investor, you mean? As a well, it's probably mezzanine. <laughs> we call it Loge in Los Angeles, where I'm from. We started working on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and even in just that short amount of time, you can really feel the debate about personalized learning heating up. There have been, you know, even more big investors have announced that they're they're getting in. And I think people are starting to get a sense of the speed with which technology is moving into the classroom and how it's going to transform not just the way that kids learn, but the way that teachers teach. And I, for one, am wondering if maybe we need a few more skeptical voices. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see Silicon Valley circle the wagons around personalized learning and other kinds of tech-oriented interventions. By wagon, you mean driverless car. Yeah, circle the Ubers, excuse me, uh, around uh, technological interventions. I mean, so, you know, I think I have two observations here. And one is about the long history of failed efforts to use technology to transform American education. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you go back to uh, the, the advent of radio, there was discussion about how radio was going to really transform public education. And of course, when uh, film becomes available, uh, there's an equal amount of chatter about how the use of film strips is going to totally revolutionize uh Teaching and learning, and uh, in this case, you know many prognostications that are not so different from some of the uh, thinking today around the way computers will transform teaching and learning. Uh, so when film became available, and then this became amplified even further when television uh, could enter the classroom, uh, there was talk about uh, possibly uh, eliminating a large chunk of the teacher labor force, of deprofessionalizing teaching, of making teachers into uh, something akin to instructional aides who would handle the film clips or who would roll the televisions in and out and then conduct some Salcon style flipped classroom. Uh, work with students. And of course, uh, this is all quite laughable now uh, that we are in the digital age, um, but we seem to be immune to the lessons of history uh, in this case when it comes to zeros and ones. Um, the, the, other, uh, the other observation that I was going to make was about uh, the interesting timing here uh, with regard to the rise of American public education, the maturation 
of the public education system, uh, and then uh, the the work of industrialists um, and and capitalists outside of the system uh, who are interested in school reform. Uh, so for for much of the history of American public education, um, the work of improving public schools was actually very straightforward. It was to build a system. Uh, and so from the 1850s through uh, the end of that century, uh, the work was simply to build more schools, um, to build uh, school buildings that were large enough to serve students in the community, uh, to begin collecting enough tax dollars to actually hire professional teachers, perhaps to ensure that Teachers are getting a professional education. Um, from 1900 to about mid-century, the work was expanding access, uh, getting all students into and through high school, uh, and continuing to open up higher education. Uh, as the system has reached maturity, of course, these simple problems uh, have been solved, and we've been left with a lot of dilemmas um, that by definition are unsolvable. Um, the, the tech uh, billionaires who are so interested today in school reform, however, tend to see most of those dilemmas. Uh, dilemmas around questions like, um, you know, how can we promote students more student learning in the classroom when there are 20 students in the class and only one teacher. Uh, this is something that uh, is dictated not only by the scale of our system, uh, but also by uh, the limits on funding due to the tax-funded nature of public education in the United States. And they've approached this as a simple problem, as a technical problem that can be solved through creative thinking, a willingness to disrupt, and enough dollars committed to the enterprise. Um, and so there is actually something really different this time than in previous generations where, uh, you know, wealthy and politically connected school reformers had a desire to quote-unquote disrupt uh, public education. Um, in fact, the word was not disrupt because uh, the work of school reform was actually to build a system. And now that we have a system, um, the idea of disrupting is one that is fairly new and that promises to, surprise, surprise, be quite disruptive. We have a special guest who understands this topic very well, who is going to join us in just a moment. But first, I want to play a clip of a Silicon Valley disruptor. This is Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, who recently announced that he's making a big bet on personalized learning. Here he is a couple months ago explaining why. There's this new trend um, towards more personalized learning. All right, so now that we have uh, the internet and different different tools to, to learn. You know, some some kids learn better by uh, you know watching videos. Some learn better by reading. Some learn better by practice problems. Um, some learn better by collaborating with other people or working independently. Having the the ability to learn uh, using the the method that matters the most to you is going to help every child get ahead, right? Um, being able to focus more time on the things that are challenging and, and fun for you uh, will help you get ahead, right? So some concepts you might just get immediately and others might be hard, but in today's education system, you kind of need to spend the same amount of time on everything. Um, and, you know, so making it so that, every, that, that the education can be personalized for each person um, is, is going to be a big difference. And there are already some early studies um, put out by uh, the Gates Foundation that show that even for the first set of um, personalized learning schools that are out there. You know, there's probably you know, dozens today, but not hundreds or thousands. Um, the outcomes can be 
um, as much as 50% better a year, right? Which means that, um, you know, if you do 50% better um, 12 years in a row, then that's actually 100 times better. I want to welcome to the podcast Bill Fitzgerald, who directs the Privacy Evaluation Initiative for Common Sense Media. Bill, I just played a clip from Mark Zuckerberg, who was extolling the transformative powers of personalized learning. But as you like to point out, a more accurate name for this stuff might be algorithmically mediated learning, which, as I can testify from just having tried to say it, doesn't have quite the same ring. I think if you if you put five people in a room and ask them for a definition of of um, personalized learning, you'll probably get seven different definitions. That's because their definitions so, are personalized. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I mean, I think that it's you know there even there there is not I don't think a single definition of personalized learning that that satisfies everybody who actually works works in education technology. When we talk about algorithmically mediated learning, we're talking about a very specific type of interaction which even though it's actually called personalized learning, actually cuts people out of the process, cuts people out of the equation. So we have the semantics of the term, which actually sound very human, but in some implementations, not all, but in some, we actually have a process where what we call personalized learning is actually less personal and less humane. One of the things that's so confusing about this debate is that personalized learning can mean so many different things. Just in the last few days, I've seen it used to refer to both project-based learning and the kind of my teacher is an algorithm approach that you're talking about. One version of you know what could be called personalized learning would actually look a lot like portfolio-based assessment, where you have students students designing um, their learning experience, commenting on their learning experience, doing it, you know, looking, having, you know, researching topics, doing work on topics that they that they've chosen and having actually a direct hand in, in shaping their assessments. Like that's, that's actually a form of what we could call personalized learning. But what often happens is something which is, you know, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum where there is a piece of software with a set of, you know, with a set of predetermined paths and outcomes. Um, you know, you can, you know, you can actually, you can get there in different ways, but the, the roads you're going to travel are already built. You just, you, just have a, you just have a choice about whether you turn right or left, but not ultimately about where you go. Walk us through what that actually looks like. What, use a particular subject area. Use Because um, we're, we're, we're talking about loops, we're talking about algorithms, but what's it like when you're on the receiving end of, of content that's being delivered this way? And, and how, does it, how does it move along? Make it real. You know, one of the most visible examples of this is is something like Khan Academy, um, and I think there there are probably people within the personalized learning world who would say that Khan is not a good example of personalized learning. Um, but you know, you know, within within Khan Academy, you have you know some of the basic, you know, you have some of the basic mechanisms that a lot of systems build on. You have lessons that a uh, that the learner can choose from. You have a recommended path. You have recommendations about, uh, you know, what question or what, um, what tutorials might be most helpful if and when it spots problems that the, that a learner is having with, um, with content. So, I mean, it's, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really, it's going to vary. Um, it's going to vary student to student. I mean, I think there, there are some students that will, that will benefit from, the, you know, the ability to actually go through something at their own pace. There will be other students who really actually won't be able to get it without a human interaction. 
Um, and I think the other, the other piece with personalized learning is that we often don't talk about how, how much of the day should actually be devoted to, you know, to computerized instruction or algorithmically mediated instruction. You know, what, what actually, what makes sense there is, you know, is, you know, should that be five minutes? Should that be 20 minutes? Should that be two hours? Um, and I think these are all, these are all areas where, you know, I think to be generous, the research base is, is very incomplete. Um, so, I mean, there, there are things that we, there are things that we just don't know. And, uh, and I think to claim, to claim otherwise is to get a little bit out of ourselves. I think one of the things that's really interesting here about the loose definition of uh, personalized learning is that it allows for a kind of bait and switch. I was listening to you uh, at the tail end of your comment there say that uh, you know the, the research uh, is, is inconclusive or hasn't yet been done. And uh, advocates of personalized learning sometimes do like to point to research uh, that has been done in order to say, you know, the personalized learning gets results. And then you dig into it and you see that there are two very different uh, sets of research that have almost nothing to do with each other. One is related to the Ben Bloom mastery learning style work done back in the 70s and 80s on uh, you know, using tutors or instructional aids to do a sort of one-off with students in classrooms, uh, where students are able to pursue their own authentic questions uh, and to have uh, materials provided for them that align with the things that they're interested in and where their skills are. Um, which, of course, that is that is not what's happening when students are sitting in front of computer terminals. And then there's this <laughs> this very very different body of research uh, on you know what happens to student standardized test scores when they sit in front of their algorithmically uh, mediated learning devices. Very good, Jack. Uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna and, I'm gonna go ahead and give Jack approval to move on to the next, next level. level. <laughs> and, and and I and I I couldn't help but think of uh, you know since uh, we're talking about something that someday will be. AI. I couldn't help but think of AI meaning artificial intelligence. Yes, exactly. Um, I couldn't help but think of uh, a, a somewhat similarly uh, acronymed uh, program, DI, Direct Instruction, uh, which is actually not delivered by computers. It's delivered by teachers. Uh, it's scripted instruction, uh, and. The results on direct instruction over the years have been very consistent and very positive with regard to student standardized test scores. And teachers hate it, and students generally don't really like it very much. Uh, and parents, when they figure out what's going on, are extremely divided over it. Because essentially what uh, it does to students is uh, turns them into, um, into sponges uh, acquiring content rather than uh, autonomous um, agents of their own futures. One of the things that I see rooted underneath a lot of the conversations about... Um, you know, personalized learning, direct instruction, and you know, and, and really different different methods of, uh, of teaching and different methods of schooling and different structures of schooling is some strong disagreements about what assessment should be. And this is where you know, I mean, I think there's, you know, I I would be curious to look at to look at the connections between people who place a lot of value 
in a standardized test score or in a series of standardized test scores and how that how that aligns or doesn't align with uh with with you know with people who are who are strongly supportive of you know of of uh personalized learning in in more or less scripted systems and then see how that compares to things like uh you know project based learning or or portfolio based assessment because those are those are very different ways of actually measuring student growth and actually of looking at student growth um i mean and and we in the in all of this conversation too we've actually we haven't even touched the issue of uh, student voice like it you know i mean this is something like within within any of these personalized learning systems like what one of the things i always look for when i'm actually assessing a system is what mechanisms are in place to allow students to comment on on their own process and to allow students to correct the impressions that the software is giving um and that's something that is not <clears throat> it's not present in many places like we often and this is this is, I think a problem that exists across the board in education period is we are often hesitant to step aside and make room for students who really are the experts in their own experience to share that expertise with us and this is i think you know in you know from a from a learning system place like that can actually sometimes you know that's a design flaw but from a systems place i think that's a um that's that's something where the adults in the room actually we need to we need to step aside. We need to we need to make make room for voices that are not our own and for voices that actually might disagree with things that we feel strongly about. Listening to you there, Bill, it just it, it was resonating with me. Uh, you know, how many different strands are bound together in this uh, personalized learning rope, uh, and often producing strange bedfellows as a result. Uh, you know, folks yep. who are advocating for um, for portfolio assessment, for instance, are often very much opposed to uh, algorithmically mediated learning. Um, folks who are uh, turning to standardized test scores for evidence of student learning are uh, not, not often uh, in favor of uh, teacher-rated uh, performance assessments. Um, people yeah. who uh, are big advocates of student voice and self-directed learning are often not big supporters of scripted instruction. And, and yet all these folks end up uh, bound together under this uh, the loose heading of personalized learning. I want to add one more bedfellow to that mix. Advocates of religious education Education, including our very own Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, are big fans of personalized learning. And they like it because these closed learning systems that Bill has been describing make it easier to control the content of what kids are learning. Well, so this is this is less a personalized learning thing and more a um, more a you know algorithmically mediated approach to what content people people get type issue. But you know, these decisions are made with content filters all the time. Um, and, you know, in, in public school settings, uh, the two reasons that are most commonly used for this are E-rate compliance and, um, and bullying protection, online, online bullying protection. Um, so the, uh, the argument, I mean, the general argument that's, that's used is, is one of, you know, we need to, we need to look after student safety, but it's, it's not uncommon. Um, and when I say not uncommon, I mean, the ACLU has sued several school districts about this. Um, to have content filtering that limits access to LGBTQ um, resources for kids that uh, that would flag, 
you know, some mental health searches about suicide. Um, so, you know, as, as things that are, as things that are off limits, uh, you know, information about, um, about breast cancer or, um, female, female reproductive health, things that actually kids need to have access to and for whatever reason might not feel comfortable, um, you know, getting in a, uh, in a, like in the home setting or someplace else. Um, so, but instead of actually allowing, allowing cleaner access to really basic resources that, that kids need, um, we use technology to place barriers, um, in, in, in some, in some instances. And that's, uh, not really a personalized learning example, but certainly an example of technology being used to circumscribe what kids have access to. Um, in doing so on adult terms, not on kid terms. And it does, it does get down to controlling who, who can access what and what resources are going to be put into allowing or controlling what, what people can access. Uh, I want to ask you to sort of step back and talk a little more about what's driving all of this stuff. We have an education historian here. Jack has spent his career chronicling the kind of the, obsession throughout history with what ails our schools. And you can really feel a consensus emerging that, you know, the problem has been that we just expect kids to all learn in the same way and at the same time. And if we just do that differently and personalized learning is the way to do that, Finally, we'll we're, beat Finland. We're going to beat Finland, right? Do they even do they even know? Do they do the Finns even have words for personalized learning? We should. We'll ask Pazi Salberg that. I I don't. You know, I I don't think that they do. But talk talk a little bit about that. That um, the the idea that if we just you know on the one hand you have this insistence about making learning more self directed, and then as you just talked about. The solution to that is these kind of closed systems where there doesn't seem to be a lot of room for student voice. Well, yeah, I mean, and I, I always try and be very careful when when talking about the history of education for, for a couple reasons. Um, first is you know it's definitely it's far outside my my area of expertise, so I am, I am at best a mildly informed layperson in these conversations. D- don't um, worry about that. Jack is well informed enough for us all. <laughs> Well, and and the and and the second piece though is that I mean I like I I am the embodiment of who our educational system was designed for and has worked for historically. Like I am a straight middle class white male, and now I happen to work in technology and education. Like I I am who our school system was designed to work for, and I don't. I think when we talk about our school system, we kind of need to break it out and. You know, yeah, we've had multiple school systems. Like we've had the school systems that are that are designed for people like me, um, which historically have actually done a decent job educating people like me. Um, but then, you know, I mean, I think to ignore the fact that we've had segregated schools and we've had a range of efforts to basically fix inequities in our education system, going back, you know, I mean, and you know, in these these efforts to you know, quote unquote, fix our education system have been, you know, some have been more sincere than others. But I don't think any of them have actually worked. So when we talk about what our, you know, when we talk about our, our education system and one size fits all, I mean, I think, you know, we we need to acknowledge that there's a context within which, you know, our our education system has never has never worked in 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 an equitable way. So when we talk about one size fits all, you know, I think we need to be very careful about how we're defining all. Um, with that said, yeah, I mean there. 
there definitely has been a mythology going back over time that yeah, like the you know if we can actually just get the right input at the right time, we'll we'll, we'll fix everything. That's remained remarkably consistent across time and across technology. Um, and it, <laughs> and I would uh, I would love to hear some unpacking as to you know why even though our our social um, context has changed and our technological context has context has changed, um, our mythology hasn't. Um, and yeah, I, I have no idea what the answer is, but I would love to hear people who actually know more about it um, come up with one. What? Jack is hovering near his microphone, and he's got his unpacking face on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm, re- I'm ready to uh, to go to the next level for unpacking. So I just want to complete this task. Okay, go ahead. I get my badge. Um, so yeah, I was listening to you, Bill, and thinking that you know. A part of the allure of technology. I mean, obviously, a part of it is that we look around at many facets of our lives and see them transformed by technology. And so it's easy to be bad social scientists and overgeneralize and say, well, therefore, technology ought to revolutionize uh, the way that we uh, engage in teaching and learning inside our schools. Um, but another piece which struck me as I was listening to you was the fact that political problems uh, and, and moral problems are so much stickier and more challenging to deal with than technical problems. Uh, and so you know you mentioned uh, segregated schools. The challenge of desegregating schools is a political and moral problem, not a technical problem. Um, and the the part of the allure of technology is that it suggests that whatever is holding, uh, our schools back in terms of delivering uh, an equally excellent education for all children is simply a matter of uh, a, a technological fix that it's not going to require us to make a difficult trade-off, uh, that it does not pose a dilemma uh, that is unsolvable and that will require us uh, to collectively make a decision about what we value and uh, for some of us to give things up. Uh, it instead suggests that the technological rising tide will lift all boats. Uh, and, and that's and that's wishful thinking that is always been in our schools uh, and again as you mentioned you know you said across uh, uh, different kinds of technologies and I'm thinking of uh, a book by a mentor of mine Larry Cuban who wrote a book called oversold and underused and it was about computers in the classroom but Larry has also written about uh, you know thinking about how radio would transform instruction uh, in the early <laughs> part of the 20th century and then next, <laughs> Next, next, it was television uh, that was going to transform. I have one that's even older. Now, I know we're talking about K-12, but if you go back to the late 19th century, the education disruptor of the day was actually correspondence courses. And you can find colleges that started getting rid of their on-campus programs because everyone just assumed that learning by mail was going to revolutionize everything. So there. Bill, I want to change directions just a bit and ask you about a story that was in the New York Times recently. The story was about how Google has taken over the classroom, and you had a great quote about how Silicon Valley disruptors have appropriated the language of equity in a way that mostly benefits them. What did you mean by that? You know, we have these kind of social and ethical and and moral issues, and algorithms can effectively... Um, embed those and make them less visible. And because it's an automated process, we kind of were trained to think that there's, you know, that they're 
we're trained to think that it's more objective, when the reality is its lack of objectivity just gets done automatically every single time. So, you know, I think there's, you know, I think there's some some large-scale misunderstanding of, of actually of what algorithms do and how, how they can embed biases. And, you know, we have examples of this all over the place. You know, when, you know, some of Julian Angwin's work at ProPublica and, um, in racial bias in uh, in some of the software that's used in our in our justice system is you know one real real clear example of that. I mean, just this week we have uh, Uber rolling out pricing that will shift based on what an individual user is um, is expected to pay or um, would uh, would feel comfortable paying. So I mean that's yeah, that's that's a great example of a personalized system. Um, which completely actually takes advantage of the of the person using the system, and also um, cuts actually cuts labor out because the shift in in prices doesn't actually accrue to the driver; it actually goes straight to corporate. So we you know we see these examples of personalized systems which really um, create uh, greater you know greater inequities or or in- increase inequities, and this is where I think it's it's very easy to talk about the language of automation as a language that uh that eliminates you know really what what it does is it 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 minimizes the possibility for human interference in the process as it's happening but it downplays the reality that algorithms are a completely human controlled process and even though there are times where the more complicated ones require a team of people to actually understand them there's still like there's still a creation that we've that we put out into the world and you know, and we, you know, we humans have have a say, and we, I think, downplay that at our peril. And I think there's a tendency in some of the, you know, more marketing focused conversations about personalized learning to downplay the role that humans have in creating these systems, um, in in an attempt to make it seem like these things actually conquer some of these really hard and intractable social issues. We started off this episode talking about the unbelievable push to remake education through personalized learning. As you know from your work, there are tons of questions to be asked about this approach, but not too many people who are asking them. I want to give you the mic one last time and ask you what are some of the questions that you think should really be front and center right now. We need to ask questions about what technologies are used in what locations and why. And we need to ask questions about, you know, why why does one environment or one setting or one school or one district make sense, whereas another one doesn't? Like, what are the what's what's the what's the full reason or the full range of reasons we are making the technological decisions that we are? Because I mean, these these lead us into the kind of uncomfortable conversations that we need to have if we are actually going to do this right. Like, I think there there are elements of personalized and even algorithmically mediated learning that can be helpful. But we need to actually, if we're going to roll these out, we need to be really clear about what we are, about what we're leaving behind and why we're doing it. And I think until we actually have these hard conversations, and this is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable, and I actually think that's a good thing, about why certain communities get certain tech and what the underlying assumptions are and what the power structures are in place there, we're like we are going to continue to be mired in mistrust and I think continue to kind of live in the same mythologies that we've been you know, looking at about how tech will or won't transform education. And we're not going to make any progress. 
That was Bill Fitzgerald. He directs the Privacy Evaluation Initiative for Common Sense Media. You can find him on Twitter at FunnyMonkey. We'll be right back with some final thoughts. I'm so often struck by how the language that's used um, to to justify this stuff seems to have so little to do with what's actually happening. So you will often hear people who talk about personalized learning um, use the word relationship. and um, But the image that you always see is of the child who has the relationship with the tablet, and then the teacher hovers nearby in some kind of new assisting role that's not, they're still an adult in the classroom? I was going to say it's really interesting that you use the word teacher, Uh right? Because a part of this is the deprofessionalization of teaching, uh, which is going to have a tremendous benefit uh, in that it will reduce the cost of education. Uh, So roughly 80% of school expenditures are on uh, staff salaries um, and is going to have a tremendous downside in that we will no longer have qualified educators in the classroom. We will have uh, paraprofessionals with an emphasis on the para. Um, And so turning teaching uh, into basically service work uh, where um, helpers will be standing by, ready to uh, move you on to the next level with your device or, uh, or to uh, take care of any bugs uh, that the tech team hasn't already uh, worked out. Um, you know, when I think about that, that, that's troubling to me not only as uh, a former teacher who is married to a teacher. Um, it troubles me because I worry about what's going to happen when this experiment fails. Uh, as it inevitably will, um, because once you once you do this damage to a profession, um, once you strip it of its prestige, and once you strip it uh, of uh, of its um, remunerative qualities, right? So you lower uh, teacher salary uh, to a point where it becomes politically challenging uh, to, to raise it again. Um, the question then is, who is going to teach? Um, and particularly when uh, the work remains as difficult as ever, um, rewarding, important, but difficult. Uh, if the rhetoric doesn't match that, if the national story is that teaching is easy, that te- teaching is standing by, ready to help a student uh, work with his or her iPad, um, you know, the the question for me is, uh, who's going to be in that classroom? The robots. <laughs> That's right. I hope the robots have earned all of their badges. Well, Jack. I hate to break it to you, but this partnership just really isn't working out. And That's all right. I've got a Chromebook. I've decided to replace you with an algorithm. Well, uh, you know, a lot of people have indicated that they're ready for me to move on to the next level. And well, I'd like to take a quick Twitter poll on this if we could. So we'll uh, we'll we'll test this one out when we release the episode. Speaking of releasing the episode, if you like the personalized content that we've been delivering every two weeks, please give us a a good review on iTunes. And until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. This is Have You Heard. 